If we can um, make our way in, make our way in. Um, by the way, uh, at the back is the 42 days uh, of prayer for Gulf Coast. It's this past week and the week coming, and then next week we'll get the final week uh, of that time. So if you have not got one of these, of course you can get them online. They'll be on Facebook every day, but um, if, if you can pick one up, it's at the table in the back, right between the two doors as you exit right there. So you can pick one of those up. Um, I trust you. Those that are using it are, are finding it helpful. Donna and I are, uh, for sure. And so encourage you to utilize that. And... Um, the, the handout that's inside the bulletin is just, hopefully that serves you, helpful for following along, but utilize that. And just uh, uh, for those that are not aware, uh, on Saturdays, um, I send out what you might call a tease for the sermon, a, just a, you know, kind of a preview of where we'll be talking about, and that gives you an opportunity to think about the text, to uh, look at that, to, to set your heart in the right place for considering these things when we gather together. And so, uh, if you'd like to receive that, let us know. We can get you signed up for that. Also, I'll send out something to, if we post a, a blog post, like I'm getting ready to post a, a blog post, well, you'll get something to notify you about that as well. So, for those uh, that want that. Well, if you would, open your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And we are going to start a new series that is more or less a series within the previous series. It's, it's not so much that we're finished with the previous, but um, that we, we've been talking about our gospel witness, the reason for our existence, and in that we walk through our missional priorities and some other aspects of that. And, and as, I've, as I've listened to the conversations that I'm hearing people talk about these, uh, I realize that maybe there's a need to go a little further back. Maybe there's a need to step back from what we're talking about and maybe even understand why we have a mission to begin with. And, and so I want to talk a little bit about that. And so I'm starting today a, a, a series called Your Kingdom Come. Um, th- this series, in a way, this message, rather, of this series... Uh, began as my thought on the last message for the previous series, but then I realized, well, really, it's better as a first message for where we're going. Uh, so it kind of serves as both. Um, it, it, it started as a why the mission, uh, but it's, it's really going to be a part of uh, what is the kingdom of God and why pray for its coming. And the title of this new series is Your Kingdom Come, and uh, this particular message, Kingdom Lost, Kingdom Longing, kingdom coming. Kingdom lost, kingdom longing, kingdom coming. And if you would read with me Matthew 6, in fact, we're going to pray this together. So um, as soon as it starts with the Our Father, I'm going to ask you to read along with me and pray it with me. But beginning at uh, the start of verse 9, this then is how you should pray. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. 
Amen. Hugh Halter, a man who trains people to be missionaries right where they are, right where they live, trains pastors to build churches that way. He relates the following story in his book, The Righteous Brood. He was in New York City uh, where he met up with a team to train church leaders. He says, being Irish, I had scouted out a nice Irish pub for after our first day of training. When we sat down, a waitress named Fiona served me and my three mates. After the normal food and drink orders, she asked why we had come to town. Not really wanting to talk about God anymore, I deflected. We're just here training leaders. <laughs> Quickly and curiously, she replied, Oh great, what type of leaders? Still trying not to go there, I said, nonprofit leaders, you know, folks who are trying to help things out in the city. I hoped that that would end the conversation and we could get back to our holy merriment. But she pressed, wow, that's great. What type of nonprofit leaders are you working with? <laughs> overzealous um, waitress, evidently. Um, by this point, I had lost all creativity, so I confessed. Actually, Fiona, we're here training young pastors how to start brand new churches. Like a dark afternoon sky rolling in right before a tornado, her face, her entire face dropped. And she looked puzzled, almost angry. So why would you want to start more churches if you're trying to help our city? We all sat there with our collective answer somehow suspended in thin air. I remember thinking, well, Bible verses ain't going to work here. And so I asked her a question. Fiona, did something bad happen to you related to church, Christianity, or Christians? She began to share with us some horrific personal stories of being abused in the Catholic school she grew up in and then added a litany of generally lousy experiences she'd had with religion, religious people, and all things churchy. I was dead in the water. No easy answers would work. And for sure, it wasn't the right time to ask if she wanted us to pray for her. But then, like the dark clouds moving out and sunlight peeking through a light drizzle, foreshadowing better skies to come, I started talking about things I literally had never talked about in 30 years of pastoral work. What came out of my mouth was about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. We'll get back to Fiona in a bit. What is the kingdom of God? Could, could we offer a coherent definition of the kingdom of God? For some... The language of the kingdom of God brings to mind militaristic images, which they can form to their own desires to conquer and control others. For others, it may bring up images of how uh, some have tried to control them. Some could answer the question, what is the kingdom of God, but may not understand how it relates to the church's mission. How yearning for the kingdom lies behind each of our five missional priorities, for example. Central to how Jesus taught us to pray is the assumption that we should be longing for God's kingdom to come. Your kingdom come. And if that is central to our prayer, then it is certainly supposed to be central to our mission. Amen? 
To be clear, though, I'm not talking about your kingdom come or my kingdom come or even Gulf Coast's kingdom to come. We're talking about His kingdom come. God's kingdom. What is the kingdom of God? Why do we long for it? Why do we pray about it? What difference will it make? So we're going to explore the answer to these questions under three headings. Kingdom lost, kingdom longing, kingdom coming. Kingdom lost, kingdom longing, kingdom coming. And by the way, that's a great outline just to kind of keep in mind for sharing the gospel of the kingdom with somebody. Because it's a very simple way to share the gospel. But let's begin under the heading, kingdom lost. Through the lens of someone living in the ancient world, the first two chapters of Genesis present God as king over his kingdom, which he created, and the first humans, which he placed in his domain, Eden, as his vice regents or representatives. A a vice regent is a person who acts in the place of a ruler, governor, or a sovereign. A sovereign is a king. The whole earth belonged to God, but he had subdued a space in the wild world and turned it into paradise in order to provide for his subjects generously and bountifully, and gave them the task of working on his behalf to subdue the rest of the world, in order to generously and bountifully provide for the rest of his subjects as they were fruitful and multiplied. He did not give them authority to exploit the world, to build their own empires, but to use it in a way that would enable all of God's subjects to flourish. This is what it means to be in God's image. The, the, the word in Genesis 1 where it says we're made in the image of God, that word is often translated idol. We don't think of it that way when we read image, but you see an idol is an image of some false god, and so it was an image, all right, just of the false god. But he made us to be idols, if you will, or images of him. Just as he had taken a world that was chaos and death, and turned it into a place of flourishing and life to provide for his people, he gives them the job to do the same thing for others, for the rest of creation over which he has put them in charge. It's his kind of dominion, not the same kind of dominion that other gods of sorts have, the kind where they exploit and the kind where they oppress. No, this is a generous and benevolent dominion. And that's the kind that he gives to his people to be his representatives, his vice regents in the world. So that if people enter his territory and they see his people, they will see a reflection of him. That was what he was setting out to do. In God's kingdom, there was no lack, no stinginess, no disease, no hatred or jealousy, no envy or strife, no violence against a neighbor, no abuse or oppression. I suppose if Adam or Eve stubbed their toe, they felt momentary pain, but there was not the pain of grief or having been violated, of injustice, of inequity, of lack or inability. God's kingdom is a place where Fiona would not have experienced the pain she experienced in the church settings she was in. What happened to the kingdom? Remember the first audience hearing the book of Genesis, Moses was writing, his audience were the Israelites in the wilderness. If, if God is good, they might ask, 
Why were we slaves for 400 years in Egypt? If God is good, why was my brother or son thrown into the Nile? If God is good, why are we living in a wilderness worried about what to eat and drink? Those would be the kinds of questions maybe framed our way, but with the issues that they addressed in their heads. Genesis answers the question for them. You see, those vice regents whom God called Adam, which simply means human, and Eve, which means life. Hey, human and life. (laughs) That's what he called them. They, instead of representing God to the world, instead of subduing the rest of the world in order to generously provide for the rest of God's subjects, as he had for them, they rebelled against his rule and decided that they knew what was best and would determine how they should live. They were booted out of the kingdom. They were booted out of paradise. We see the effect of the kingdom lost immediately. First, in Genesis 3, we discover that their relationship would be marked by power plays and their work with poverty, kingdom lost. In the very next generation, envy of one another leads to murder, Cain and Abel, we read in Genesis 4, verse 9 and 10, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What you have done? What what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Paradise, or Eden, which can be translated paradise, if you will, it describes the condition when humanity lived under God's reign. The moment they rebelled against his kingdom, shame, blame shifting, and jealousy crept in. Jealousy led to murder. The blood on the ground was not literally crying out to God as if sound waves could have been detected off of that blood. But it sat there as a witness to the fact that Cain had murdered Abel and it grieved God. You just can't erase history and pretend it didn't happen. The blood cries out from the ground. Cain rejected his role as God's vice regent. He would not be his brother's keeper. Instead, he would strive to outmaneuver his brother. God was grieved by this hatred between brothers. If you either read stories of or watch CSI or other crime stories, you you know that you can't get rid of blood easily. Cleaning a crime scene to the naked eye is not sufficient. Bleach does little to help. It will still leave traces behind. Abel's blood was crying out to God. It's a poetic way, if you will, of saying that God is grieved over the violence of the human experience. Kingdom lost. In Noah's time, Genesis 6, 5, when we read that God was grieved because of how great man's wickedness had become, well, if we keep reading, we discover a particular aspect of that wickedness that grieved God so much. Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. Hamas, it's a Hebrew word, kingdom lost. Human violence against one another grieves God to the point of regret. It says that he regretted that he had made man. But this regret is not a lack of love for humans, but it actually grows out of his love for humans. He regretted 
because they were harming each other so greatly. Babel, chapter 11. It's a picture of the accumulation of power to accomplish evil. It was the beginning of organized oppression for the building of power. God thwarted their ability. Kingdom lost, though. Another story that comes to mind in this regard is that of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah are the anti-kingdom, if you will. Two men, who are really angels, arrive at Sodom, and Lot, who is sitting at the city gate, immediately greets them and insists that they stay at his house. He doesn't realize that they are angels. He merely understands the importance of showing them hospitality, protecting the stranger. Before the night is over, the men of the city surround the house, desiring to gang-rape the travelers. Strangers today are in danger of being violated by the gang, too. The collective community in charge, in order to satisfy their desires or fears, they need a lot type of hospitality. They need Lot's idea of how to protect strangers. Now, some look at that story as if God is the bad guy for going overboard and destroying the whole city. I think there's a better way to understand the issue, though the story is undoubtedly a difficult one on a number of levels. Netflix has a series available called Keep Sweet and Obey, uh, which is the story of Warren Jeffs and the fundamentalist Latter-day Saints. You may be familiar with that story, you may not. By the time you get through the four episodes, you realize not only how hideous Warren Jeffs was and many of the men in the community, but that many of the women had become complicit in some of the most hideous of their deeds. Our niece recently visited from Missouri and It came up somehow, and so when she got home and had some time, she watched the four episodes, and she texted Donna and and asked the question, why didn't the women go to prison too? Why didn't the women go to prison too? And, And of course, there's probably a lot of legal reasons and issues as to why that shouldn't have happened or whatever, but the point is, is that kind of corruption becomes systemic throughout a culture. And listen, the fundamentalists out there in southern Utah and Texas had nothing on Sodom and Gomorrah, to be sure. Remember, we're reading the same Bible. When we read about Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 19 of Genesis, we're reading the same Bible in which the euphemism for marital love is Adam knew his wife Eve, and she bore a son. We're told about Sodom and Gomorrah, and as much as it does say, it is still at the level of a euphemism compared to reality. This was the age of understatement. We live in the age of overstatement. They lived in the age of understatement. And so what we see described, as horrible as it seems, is nothing compared to what the reality of it was. It's a sheer mercy from God that annihilated an entire community which had become so systemically involved in violence on the vulnerable that it was the embodiment of the anti-kingdom. It was the kingdom loss personified in a city. Kingdom loss. And that leads to kingdom longing. That's our second heading. And don't worry, my first heading is the one that I'm going to spend most of my time in, so we're, we're done with that. But Kingdom longing. Central to the Lord's Prayer is the assumption that we should be longing for God's kingdom to come. But, but that didn't start with the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus said, your kingdom come, the audience would have understood the 
innate desire for the kingdom. The Old Testament points to the restoration of the kingdom, the restoration of a place where God would once again dwell with His people and they with Him. Israel longed for the kingdom, but they often longed for it in the wrong ways. Remember when they asked for a king, and God viewed it as a rejection of Him as king. They wanted a human king who could provide them with peace through earthly power. God worked to show them a different kind of kingdom. He had to start from where they were. So God chose David. David was surely a mixed bag of tricks as a person. But he was different enough from Saul. Loyal enough to God that God could use that to bring about one who would build his kingdom and to give them a pattern to know what to look for. Ultimately, it was inevitable because of human sin that every earthly kingdom would fail. The kings of God's people became every bit as oppressive as the kings of the other nations. That's the story of the Old Testament. The prophets spoke of a different kind of kingdom that would restore peace and justice the peace and justice of God's kingdom. The original justice warriors, the OG as they might say today, were the prophets of the Old Testament. They cried out against hunger, poverty, homelessness, inequity, political corruption, bribery, coercion, oppression. Shall I go on? There is not a justice issue today that they did not address then. They also spoke about a coming king and kingdom in which the hungry would be fed, the poor would be rich, the homeless would find dwelling places, fair inheritances of land restored, corruption would cease, and power would be used to defend the cause of the powerless. In such a world, children would not die in infancy, but people would live long lives full of good things. When Jesus said to pray, your kingdom come, his first audience knew he was telling them to pray for all of that, not some of that. All of that, not some of that. And even more, to be sure. This must be their consuming desire. The prayer, the Lord's Prayer, it's a gospel formation prayer. It's, It's designed to form in us the, the kinds of desires that Christ has for the world when we pray, Your kingdom come. Fiona's story helps us see the innate longing people have for God's kingdom. So we're going to pick up after Hugh mentions that he began talking about the kingdom of God. He writes, It, it sounded something like this. Fiona, first, thanks for sharing your pain. We are all very sorry that happened and I can totally understand why you would never want more religious activity to come to your city. But I do know one thing for sure. Jesus hates all that stuff way more than we do. And he hates the stuff that hurt you personally. Her expression began to soften and she asked what Jesus came to do. As he explained that Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God or of heaven, she asked, Can you give me a practical example of what the kingdom of heaven might be like here in this dump? (laughs) Yeah, I, I can. Jesus said the kingdom is like a mustard seed, which is so small you can barely see it, but it grows into a huge tree. He he taught that if we had even a mustard seeds seeds amount of faith, we could see mountains moved in, in this neighborhood. 
How many people do you think are in severe poverty or in an, in an abusive home? Many, she said. Well, what Jesus was saying was that if even one abusive father has a spiritual rebirth and then lives his life after the way of Jesus, the abuse would stop in that family and it would literally change the legacy of generations in that family. The same would be true with poverty. The moment we help one person escape extreme hunger or we help pay their rent and keep them off the streets, we are bringing a little slice of heaven to earth. Because in heaven, there's no abuse, no poverty, no pain, no suffering, no loneliness, no racism, no exploitation, no crime, no vomit on the sidewalk, and all the toilets flush. (laughs) So Jesus was inviting us into a life where we bring heaven to earth, even if it's in small doses. And as we do that, the world changes for people. I like that, she replied. We pray your kingdom come, longing for the day when all pain, grief, and sorrow are passed away because the causes of that pain, grief, and sorrow have passed away. But we don't pray in an escapist way. We are not praying, Lord, come get us out of here. We are praying, Lord, come bring about the fullness of your peaceable kingdom. We pray this while laboring to live in his kingdom way, speculating on the kingdom, as I talked about a couple of Sundays ago when we were looking at that parable of the, of the, uh, the talents that, that were, were given out. The parable of speculating on the kingdom, as I like to call it. We're speculating that he will return as king, so we're living under his rule now. And this leads to our final heading, kingdom coming. Our prayer is for the restoration of the kingdom of God, which will fully be established at the return of the king. Our longing is our longing for the one day fullness of that kingdom in no way takes away from longing for as much as can be seen here and now. See, oftentimes people think, well, if we're longing for that day to come, why bother doing anything now? It's not going to matter. No, it will matter. It's all speculating on the kingdom, and all the rewards there will be based on how well we do that here. But our longing for the one-day fullness of the kingdom in no way takes away from longing for as much as can be seen here and now. Christ's kingdom is in-breaking now. The snow is melting in Narnia. And we are to bear witness to that in our lives. How does this happen? As God's people prayerfully submit to doing His will on earth as it is in heaven, His kingdom comes near. It comes to bear in the lives of the people around us. The picture painted in Scripture for our waiting is that of waiting for a returning king who will return to rule. We see this in Matthew 25. You probably are somewhat familiar with the parable of the ten virgins, or you've heard of that quite possibly. We we read that parable there in Matthew 25, beginning in verse 1. It says, At that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. When you read ten virgins, think ten bridesmaids. Put it in modern terminology. You've got ten bridesmaids. Not matrons, 
but maids, okay? <laughs> They're ten virgins. And they go out to meet the bridegroom. Now, do you suppose that these virgins, when the bridegroom arrives, they've gone out, the wedding celebration is here, the, the, the bride is waiting behind for her groom to come, but they're going to go out and greet him. Now, what are they going to do when they greet him? Are they going to run off with him and leave the bride at the altar, standing there without a groom? No. They're going to greet him and welcome him in and bring him, escort him to the wedding party, right? That's the whole idea. Keep that in mind because that's important as we understand what we're longing for. Five of them were foolish, verse 2 tells us, and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Now, if you would, just that word meet in your Bible, if you've got your Bible open, just underline that word meet. It's an important word. We're going to get back to it in a moment. Come out to meet him there at the end of verse 6. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. And you know the rest of that story, or you can read it later. This word for meet in verse 6, come out to meet him, is used three times in the New Testament. Outside the Bible, it was used to speak of an elite welcoming party who would go out to greet a coming dignitary and escort him into the city. So they would go out and meet the dignitary. They would escort him in like a mini parade coming into the city. We see this in sports today. In 2003, when the Buccaneers won their first Super Bowl, when they landed at the airport, the fans lined the streets between the airport and one buck place to welcome them back to the city as champions. Under the pandemic, when the Lightning won the Stanley Cup, their families greeted them at the airport, at least, and welcomed them back. <laughs> it's a much smaller affair. We see it at the airport all, all the time with soldiers returning from deployment, met by friends and family, and escorted home. In, in the parable, the virgins go to meet the bridegroom and escort him into the city to the, cele to the celebration of his arrival in Acts 28. Last chapter of the book of Acts. Paul finally arrives in Italy, and the believers from Rome go down to the three shops, the resting place that travelers would stop at and refresh to meet Paul and escort him, as a spiritual dignitary, if you will, the last 11 miles into Rome. A little picture of how the gospel is going to conquer Rome, too. And then in 1 Thessalonians 4, so we've covered the two of them, the, the, the parable that we were reading earlier and that story of Paul being escorted into Rome. And then we get to 1 Corinthians 4, 7, one of the more popular verses that it's used, but without its normal meaning, it's often used. In 1 Corinthians 4, it's used of believers going to meet the Lord in the air. And if we allow the word to mean what it meant to the original audience, we are not going to meet him in the air and turn around and go to heaven. He's going to turn around and take us to heaven. He's not escorting us. We're escorting him. We're going to meet him in the air and escort him in to the city where we celebrate his reign. Changes that up just a little bit. We are speculating on the kingdom. And that means that everything we do now in preparation for that time matters. It still counts. We are not building the kingdom, but bearing witness to its reality. We are not building the kingdom, we are bearing witness to its reality. Michael Goheen and Tim Sheridan in 
their book, Becoming a Missionary Church, um, they, they say the following, Our deeds cannot build the kingdom, but only witness to its presence and power. Our social action is an enacted prayer for the kingdom. The pursuit of justice and mercy arises from love for our neighbor. We do not separate our deeds from the name of Jesus, but pray that our deeds might bring the conversion of those who see them. Amen. This all grows out of love for the king. As we love the king, we love what he loves. See, if we love the king, we're going to start to love what he loves and hate what he hates, right? David said that. This is, this is how we begin to think. I love the king. Well, what does he love? Well, he loves justice. He loves mercy. He is compassionate and gracious. He hates oppression. The deeds we are called to walk in grow out of our love for God, which grows out of his love for us. We know the manifestation of the kingdom will be in part now as a mustard seed growing. As Walter Casper, a Catholic scholar, wrote, quote, But the Bible also knows that perfect justice is not now and never will be achievable in this world. For this reason, in the face of irrevocable unjust relationships, the Bible speaks of eschatological hope in God's justice. In this way, the call for mercy, listen, the call for mercy surpasses the cry for justice in the Bible. The Bible understands mercy as God's own justice. The Bible understands mercy as God's own justice. Mercy is the heart of the biblical message, not by undercutting justice, but by surpassing it. The Old Testament speaks of God as a gracious and merciful God, and the New Testament calls God the Father of mercies and the God of all consolation. Amen, amen, and amen. Living our lives for the coming king, speculating on his kingdom, bears witness to the gospel of King Jesus. It bears witness to the gospel of King Jesus. It, it gives the world the ability to understand what we are saying in the gospel of the kingdom by looking at us and going, oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. You see, the problem Fiona had at the beginning of the conversation was what she saw of Christians made no sense out of the message. Okay. Well, back to Fiona and Hugh. After talking to her about the kingdom of Jesus for the first, that first time, he writes this, quote, The next night we went back and talked a bit more about the kingdom. On the next night, now the third night, uh, or the final night, he says, After all my friends had flown home, I went back at midnight just to say goodbye to her and wish her well. As I entered the packed pub, I heard Fiona's voice over the crowd. Hey, that's the guy I was telling you about. You've got to hear how he talks about God. And with that, the crowd split, and she invited me to the bar. Hugh, I've got to work, she said, but these are my best friends. Can you please tell them that stuff you were telling me about the kingdom of heaven? And so I did, until 5 a.m. Every one of them commented that they'd never heard of anything as good. Amen, amen. They'd never heard of anything as good as the kingdom of heaven and hoped 
that someday they would believe that it was real. People may be turned off by religion as they conceive it, but they are still fascinated by the way Jesus came and changed things for the needy, the sick, the oppressed, and the lost. They long for an alternative way of life in which a peaceable kingdom can come to bear on planet earth with all its violence. Amen? In other words, people everywhere are desperate for the gospel. The fantastic news of God's kingdom come. Your kingdom come. It has come. It is coming. And it will come in fullness. See, that is why we have a mission. Because God does. God is establishing His kingdom for the good of humanity. He is forgiving rebellious subjects who now realize that their ways have led to death. He is justifying us, which means He sets us right with Himself. But also that He sets us right in relationship to one another. He is reconciling the whole world to Himself, all creation, but working to set it back and how it, to, to how it was made to be to begin with. Creation, we are told in the book of Romans, groans. Christians ought not add to that groaning by greed and consumption, but bring relief by our care and restoration. Our mission is not narrow, but broad. It is huge. It is creation-wide. When we set out praying your kingdom come and desiring the effects of that kingdom and then living for the, what we pray for, then our witness will be effective. We'll be shaped or formed into Christ's image. We will experience a gospel culture in our community. We will practice gospel mercy on behalf of our King. We will practice gospel outreach in order that others might hear. And we will live in gospel unity with all of God's people and not in the jealousy and envy of Cain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, for then your name will be honored in all the earth. Lord, teach us, form in us that yearning for the kingdom. Form in us that yearning that recognizes that you give us today our daily bread, and so that when we receive bread in excess, we look for those for whom it was intended. Father, form in us the nature of Christ so that your kingdom is manifest in our presence as we act in his name. Amen and amen.